Morning, church. Uh, just before we get into the Word, uh, we just finished a series on marriage. And uh, my first wife is here with me today. And her and I will be married in uh, three months and a few days. We'll be married 60 years. So I just want you to know that marriage does work, even for a guy like me. (laughs) Pretty amazing. It has to be a God thing. Amen? So I just want to remind you, Uh, before we pray here, of our primary objective uh, as a church for 2021. We said it would be to encourage and to equip and to empower our members toward contending for souls. In other words, for evangelism and discipleship. Some of the things that would facilitate that would be bold, persistent prayer, proclaiming God's kingdom and covenant, in walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. And so it seemed good to the Holy Spirit that if we're going to look at how to um, evangelism and, and discipleship as our focus, to look at how Jesus did it. So we're going to take a look at some examples of how Jesus evangelized and the method he used in discipling. Um, So let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus, provided eternal life and healing for us, provided everything pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you, Jesus, for sending the Holy Spirit to be with us. You've never taken him back. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the Word of God. And so we invite you to come now and to minister the Word of God. We don't want to hear from Brother Warren. We want to hear from the Spirit of the living God. As you point out some things that Jesus did, our primary example in everything, that we can do in our lives, in our evangelistic efforts, that will enhance them. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you all the glory, to give you all the praise, and to give you all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the things about evangelism is that it's a direct assault. It's a direct assault on the kingdom of darkness. Absolutely direct assault. And that's why the devil is so keeping people afraid to do evangelism because, you know, we're all born into his kingdom. And every time somebody comes to Jesus, he loses a convert every time. Every time somebody is healed, he loses. He's the author of sickness and disease, all those kinds of things. He's the one behind that. So we want to look at John 4. And um, I forgot to give, bring my list of all the scriptures for Dan over there. So you might not have them all on the screen. 
It's not Dan's fault, it's mine. I didn't bring my list with me. Uh, so we're going to look at a few examples. We're going to start in John 4 and uh, look down through the chapter here. And we're going to start with uh, the woman at the well. And most of this, I'll just tell you the story, remind you of the story, because there's a lot of reading and uh, it'll take all day long. But Jesus and his disciples were going through Samaria. And you all know the story. I'm just reminding you of it a little bit. And as they were going, um, they came to Jacob's well. And Jesus decided to sit down and rest a while. And the disciples were, went on into town to buy some food. And as he's sitting there, this Samaritan woman comes up to draw water. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And um, she couldn't understand that. First of all, she was a woman in that culture. They weren't thought of like they are nowadays. And she was a Samaritan. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They were despised. And so she was pretty awestruck that he asked her for a drink. And uh, So in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So that excited her, and she wanted him to give her that living water. And she really didn't understand. She was thinking um, that it was real water and that she would never thirst again and that she would never have to come and fill her water jug. And so, um, <laughs> Jesus tests her. And he said to her, uh, go and get your husband. And she answered him and said, um, I don't have a husband. And so she answered honestly. And uh, when Jesus asks a question, when the Lord asks you a question, he's never looking for information. He already knows. When he asks you a question, he's looking for your response to the question. How you respond will determine the outcome of the situation that you happen to be in at the time. He's not looking for information. He's already got that down. So we can see here that Jesus had a word of knowledge. He tells her, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. We can see that down in verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. So he had a word of knowledge out and about. This wasn't in the synagogue. This was at a well in Samaria. See? And so she said, you must be a prophet. How would you know all these things? You know? And about that time, the disciples showed up from town. And they were amazed that he was talking to this woman. 
First of all, because she was a woman, and second, because she was a Samaritan. And they couldn't understand that. And uh, But Jesus was walking in the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that was one of our goals this year, so to speak. Um, we all want to walk in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit does not make mistakes. He's the third person of the Trinity. He does not make mistakes like I do. He does not. And so if we'll just learn to follow his leading, you know, I've had three experiences in my life. I was born with God, born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then getting to know the Holy Spirit. And they're all three so important. Because when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, that just made me super hungry. But getting to know the Holy Spirit enabled me to function um, as I learned to just follow his leading. So Jesus was walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, as you can do. You know, he was just being led by the Spirit. He had a tremendous prayer life, but he spent most of his time praying alone with the Father, building his relationship with the Father, keeping it close, intimate. And that's what we need to do as well. And then he just ministered out of the overflow of that intimate relationship that he had with the Father. The Bible says he didn't know any, he didn't do anything on his own unless he heard what the Father said or he saw him do something. Now you've got to be walking pretty close with the Father to do that. And we need to all aspire to that. He's our example. He was doing that as a man. Remember, he laid, took off his royal robes and laid them down. He was, being, he was filled with the Spirit on the Jordan River, and he was operating in the power of the Spirit. And that's available to you and I. Hallelujah. So go down to verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus identifies himself. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled. As I said, he was talking to a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you talk with her? The woman then left when the disciples came. She left, left her water, everything, what she was doing, and went her way into the city and said to the men, Verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I have ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Hallelujah. They went out of the city and came to him. Verse 30. So a couple of things here. Jesus had an anointed word. Um, first of all, his name is in Christ. That's who he is. His name is Jesus, and Christ is the anointed one of God and his anointing. 
you know, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one of God and his anointing. And when you're evangelizing and you're operating in the spirit like that, um, and just with just a word of knowledge, just one word of knowledge, the people will come to that anointing. He didn't have to go out and beat the bushes and looking for them. They came to him. The city came to him because of the anointing, see? It wasn't that he was the best looking guy in town or his head taller than everybody else like Saul was. It was because of the anointing on him. Hallelujah. And I'm telling you, church, if we walk in this close relationship with the Lord, this is available to you and I. The same thing will happen. We'll get the same kind of results. Hallelujah. Okay, verse 39. Go down to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word, the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So many more believed. So revival broke out because of one word of knowledge. Two days. You know, he was very busy in those two days. But they all believed in him. Or many believed in him. Hallelujah. From one word of knowledge. So there's a couple things we can get out of this here to take away with. If you're going to, <coughs> excuse me, if you're going to evangelize, you have to be present in the lives of unbelievers at least to some extent. You have to have some interaction with them. They're not going to come to church most of the time. I had a brother-in-law that never went to church. The only evangelism he got is when I was around. And I had the privilege of leading him to Jesus on his deathbed 23 hours before he died. 23 hours. The grace of God. A man who never went to church unless somebody passed away and he was going to the funeral or somebody got married. And every time I'd talk to him about Jesus, he'd say, someday, someday. Well, on his deathbed was someday. And you could see the fear in his eyes. He didn't know what was going to happen. But praise God, God was able to save his soul. So we have to have some interaction uh, with people. And never underestimate the power of your God-given gift. Actually, the gifts are really God's. And he gives them to you or me for the need of a moment. And then they're gone again. You know, I have a, I have a word of knowledge periodically, but I don't have a word of knowledge every, everywhere I go. It's for the need of the moment. He's got a specific thing in mind. And then the gift is gone until there's that need again. But we are stewards of the gift. Amen. If we never use it, 
you can lose it. He'll go find somebody that will. But everybody has gifts from God. So there's one example, the woman at the well. The city came to Jesus and many were saved. Hallelujah. And we go down to verse 46. This is a story of the nobleman. Uh, a nobleman is just somebody who's of noble birth, who, uh, position or title, maybe a government official or something like that. And uh, this is really interesting. Um, let me read some of this to you. Beginning uh, verse 49. Um, he was trying to get Jesus to come. His son was at the point of death. And, and Jesus said to him in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, uh, you will by no means believe. And in 40, verse 49, the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now that statement told Jesus that he believed. He says, come down. If you come down and pray for my daughter, she will live. That was his attitude. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. Oh, it was his son. I'm sorry. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. See, all we have to do is believe. Notice Jesus didn't pray for his son. They weren't even in the same town. Jesus and the nobleman were in Cana, and his son was in Capernaum. But he believed. The astonishing thing is that this heathen man believed the word that Jesus said. <laughs> and his son was healed. Boom. Just like that. Amazing. Jesus is walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit just like you and I can. We can do exactly the same thing. I know that's kind of mind-boggling if you've never done any of these things, but it's available. But it doesn't just come automatically. You have to press in for more of God and less of you. You have to spend lots of time with him and you minister out of the overflow of that time you spent at his feet and his anointing. That's just the way it is. <clears throat> so the noblemen, if you go down to... Uh, he goes on and finishes the story there. I won't read it, but in verse 43, so the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. Um, he, had a, he checked and sure enough. And he himself, the nobleman, believed and his whole household was saved. So um, there's another example uh, of healing as an evangelistic tool, you might have the gift of faith. You might be in Walmart and you pray some guy's limping down the aisle and you ask him if you can pray for him. He says, oh yeah, go ahead, you know. And you pray for him and God heals him just like that. He won't, he's going to want to know who that was about this Jesus. He could probably care less about you which is a good thing, but he wants to know about this Jesus that healed him. Hallelujah. 
And in John 5, it talks about the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now here, it doesn't say that he was saved. But I cannot believe that he wasn't. The man had been sick for 38 years. An infirmity, a sickness, a weakness, a disease of some kind. 38 years is a long while. And when the angel would come down periodically and stir up the water in the pool, I've been at the pool of Bethesda in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he, and the first one to get in there, get in that pool after the angel stirred the water, would be healed. Well, this guy, you know, he couldn't get there in time. So for 38 years, he'd been trying to get in that pool. And every time somebody else got there first, and he didn't get, get healed. <clears throat> so let me read this. Uh, let's go down to verse 5. A certain man was there, had an infirmity 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time. Okay, he already knew he'd been in that condition. There's another word, there's discernment going on here. So he asked some kind of an odd question. Everybody that's in these porches around this place is there because they're sick and they're trying to get in the water for healing. So he says, do you want to be healed? It seems like an odd question when everybody's there for that reason. But you probably know people that don't want to be healed because if they won't get as much attention if they're healed. A guy I used to work with, I used to work for 3M, make paper in Wisconsin. And he got some kind of disease. I don't know what it was. I just got back from overseas. We saw 101 people healed of different stuff. God just healed everybody. And so I'm at this funeral. It was my son-in-law's mother's funeral. And this guy was there, and he's on a cane, and he can't really stand up. And so I'm telling him about all of this. And I said, you want to go sit down? And he said, yeah. So we sat down. And I said, I shared some of the healings with him. I says, why don't you let me pray for you? Don't cost anything. Oh, no, no, no. If I'm healed, I'll lose my government pension. He'd rather have that paycheck then he would be healed. Can you imagine? It's just crazy. And there's other people who get a lot of attention and normally wouldn't get attention, and they like the attention more than the healing. It's sad, but it's true. So that's why Jesus asked them that. Uh, so verse 7, The sick man answered him and said, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, well, while I am coming, another steps down before me. So Jesus could see his problem. He believed in healing. He wanted to be healed, but he just couldn't get it there. Nobody could, would help him. So what did Jesus do? Get on his knees and pray for him? No. Jesus said to him, verse 8, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
And immediately, I studied that word. That means immediately. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath day. Of course, that made all the religious people mad. The religious people, most of the time, get mad around the anointing. They just do. Because <laughs> it doesn't fit into their traditional way of doing things. And they don't want a whole lot to do with the Holy Spirit because they never know what he's going to do. And they want to know what's next. So, but that made all the religious people mad. Of course, most everything Jesus did made them mad because it went, went against all their traditions. So it doesn't say that this man was, came to know Jesus, but um, Jesus found him later on and told him, he did, they asked him who healed him and he didn't even know Jesus' name. Jesus found him later on and he said, uh, now go and sin no more. Apparently, the sickness he had was because of some sin in his life. So he was forgiven, healed, and I believe he was saved. How could you not be? If you're sick for 38 years and a man speaks seven words over you and you're healed. I mean, now most of the time, when your muscles deteriorate, and you have to go through therapy and do all these kinds of things so you can even walk again. This man didn't do any of that. He just immediately jumped up, took up his bed, and walked. The thing we have to realize is when uh, we need to take action. A lot of times there's so many scriptures about people taking action um, when they're healed. <clears throat> So I'm going to say a couple of things right here before we look at some. These are three witnesses of evangelism. And granted, this one doesn't say he, he was saved in the text, but I don't see how he could not be. But using the gifts, everybody has gifts. Probably more than one. Using your gifts in a place of love like your home group practicing or like in a church service where we all know each other for years and years and love one another, you know, and God loves you more than we love one another, amen? So if you make a mistake, he's not going to hit you over the head with a baseball bat. But if you practice, my point is, if you practice using your gift, in the home group, and in the church service. It will build your faith for using it when you're out and about, like Jesus was. Amen? amen. That wasn't a very enthusiastic amen. Amen? <laughs> you know, we're a little more reluctant to use it in Walmart than you would be here or in home group. And that's how it started for me, was in a home group. When I was pastoring up in fluorescent. And got into the church services pretty, pretty soon. We had a small congregation, 50 people if everybody showed up. And, uh, but if you never use it, your giftings in your home group or in your church in a loving atmosphere, you're certainly never going to use them when you're out and about. 
That's, that's pretty much the way it is. You know, God has given us authority and we need to use that authority. That's what Jesus, he just spoke things out of his authority because he's already seen what the Father wants to heal this person. And he just, he just declared things. So those are three witnesses for evangelism. Now we're going to look at discipleship a little bit. Um, we're going to start in Luke chapter 6. I'm just going to read verse 12. And this is where it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out of the mountain, out in the mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, among whom he also named apostles, and it names them. So Jesus is going to pick his twelve people for his inner circle, his apostles. So he didn't consult with anybody except the Father. And he prayed with him all night long. All night long. All night long. I'm not suggesting that you have to pray all night long. I've been in several all-night prayer meetings. Usually good things happen. This is an important decision. Because these 12 apostles were going to turn the world right side up. So what did he do next? He's got his 12 inner circle. What did he do next? The thing about Dr. Luke is he put everything in order the way it happened. So verse 17. And he came down with them, the apostles, and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out of him and healed them all. Woo! Healed them all. We're talking about thousands of people. Everywhere he went, there was this big entourage of people because everybody wanted to be around the anointing. I'm telling you, once you get into that place where that anointing is flowing in, you, in and through you, people will come to you. They will come to you. Everybody's hungry for more of God, especially in these days. So the first thing he did was heal everybody. So what's he doing? He's discipling his disciples by demonstration. He's demonstrating, this is how you do it, boys. <laughs> then he began to teach them, um, taught them to be attitudes. Uh, he was basically speaking to the disciples because uh, it says in verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes 
toward his disciples and said, and then it goes into the Beatitudes. So he was teaching them uh, life lessons. And he goes on in the chapter, he's teaching them how to live the Christ-centered life. You know, he tells them to love their enemies. Don't judge, you'll know people by their fruit. And the chapter ends with him saying, um, if you do these things, your life will be like a house founded on a rock. So he's giving them verbal instructions now. First he demonstrated how he wanted them to heal, have time for people and heal people, have compassion on them. Then he's teaching them some things verbally. And we go on down in uh, chapter 7. Um, this is uh, where he talks to the centurion. The centurion had built a synagogue. He was very favorable to the Jews. And he had a servant that was very sick. And the centurion didn't feel like he was worthy to even come in Jesus' presence. So he sent some friends to him. And he said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. I'm not worthy to even come to you. I have you come under my house. And so Jesus commends him uh, down in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house and found the servant well who had been sick. So the centurion understood authority. He says, I have, I'm under authority and I have men under me. I say to one, go and he goes. Another one, come and he comes, etc., etc." He realized that Jesus had authority. And he, Jesus commended him for his faith. And you have to realize the, the apostles are, the 12 are with him 24-7. They're seeing all these things, hearing everything he says. So the very next day, they're going down to the city of, of Nain. And they're coming into the city. There's a funeral procession. And it's a widow. And her son is in this open casket. He's graveyard dead. They're going to the graveyard to plant him. And he tells her, he says, don't weep. So remember, all the apostles are watching this. He's teaching them. Okay. Verse 14. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Oh, if that don't light your fire, I'm sorry, but your wood's wet. <laughs> I mean, he just shows compassion. She didn't ask him to pray for him. He just saw her coming and knew what the situation was. Touched the coffin, they stopped. He tells them to arise. Young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. So 
Jesus is walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, just as we can. Then John the Baptist sent some messengers to him. This is all in the order that it happened. They asked Jesus, are you the one or do we look for another? Jesus' response is found in verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Hallelujah. So it's like you got any more questions, boys? <laughs> this is what's happening. Jesus was walking in the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, just as you can. Then Jesus was invited to eat in a Pharisee's house, an unbeliever. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, the woman of the city, he was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed him with the fragrant oil. So now he's eating with sinners. And this sinful woman comes in who realized who Jesus was and realized how sinful her life was. And so the Pharisee said to Jesus that if you were, to himself, if you were really a prophet, he would know who this woman is who is doing this. And then Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he began to share with him uh, about the woman. You didn't wash my feet when I came in, which was traditional in those days because of the dust and they all wore sandals. But she's washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me the customary kiss when I came in. She's been kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head when I came in, but she's anointed my feet with this oil. And on and on it goes. And so Jesus was teaching the principle that the greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. She had a lot of things to be forgiven for, but she loved much. The greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. And if I started to tell you about my life before Christ, you would realize how much I love him. And I'm not going to do that because it glorifies the wrong guy. <clears throat> and go down to verse 50. So he tells Simon all about this. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith saved her. Hallelujah. The word is sozo, to give a new life, to have a new heart. Hallelujah. 
Luke 8, verse 9, tells us why Jesus taught in parables. He was telling the disciples this parable of the seer and the soul, seed and the sower. And his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So there's a lesson in here for us. A, uh, a powerful lesson. Jesus taught in parables, but it was only the committed disciples that would be that would know the mysteries of the kingdom. Only those who are committed. And then they could teach others. Then he demonstrated his authority um, over nature. And I want to go to Mark 4. That's a little more descriptive. We'll come back to Luke in a minute. Mark chapter 4, uh, verse 39, says this. They were out in the sea. They were going across to the, the country of the Gadarenes. And big storm came up and there was water. The boat was full of water. And they went and arose Jesus. He was sleeping in the front. And said, Teacher, don't you, do you not care that we are perishing? In verse 39, and he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He was astonished that they'd seen all these things already. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they were still trying to believe all the stuff that they saw. You know, sometimes people will see miracles and they still don't believe. I could tell you a testimony about that, but for the sake of time, we won't go there. So he demonstrated his authority over this. This was a big storm, like a hurricane. Three words, peace, be still. And boom, it's calm. Then they get over uh, the country of the Gadarenes. And everybody knows the story of the Gadarene demoniac who lived in the tombs, didn't wear any clothes, and they would shackle him, you know, and try to put him away somewhere, and he'd just break the shackles, uh, and this kind of a thing. And then you get down to verse um, 37. It says, the whole multitude... Uh, so Jesus cast out the demons... And there was a lot of them, a multitude of them. He said their name was Legion. Um, I don't know how many there was. A legion could be anywhere from three to 5,000 by Roman count. Um, you know, there might only have been 300. I have no idea. But that was the name that he gave Jesus. Hallelujah. <clears throat> so verse 37. So he cast out these demons 
And then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Wow. You think they would be thankful, this guy that they could not seem to keep in handcuffs that was maybe terrorizing people. I don't know. But he was very ungodly for sure. Full of demons, maybe thousands. Only Jesus knows. But instead of being thankful, they were afraid. They were afraid of the anointing. He cast them into the swine. You know the story. They all ran down a hill and drowned and so forth. So uh, here's the thing. The presence of God will not stay where it's only tolerated. The presence of God will not stay where it's only tolerated. He wasn't welcome there. So they returned, went back to where he was welcome. Hallelujah. He just left. There's a woman with the issue of blood. You all know that story. Um, in Luke 8, 46, it says this. Um, he, was, he said, somebody touch me. And there's this, thousands of people around him. And they're walking and they're bumping into him. Everybody, lots of people are touching him. But one touch was different than all the rest of them. One touch was different because one touch was a touch of faith. Huh? That was the difference. That was the difference. He said, how can you say that? Everybody's thronging you. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, somebody touch me for I perceive power is going out of me. See, when you touch God with faith, it puts a demand on the anointing. And she was healed. Boom. She spent all her money. All the physicians took her. She was poor, desperate. She wasn't even supposed to be out in public in her condition. Yet she came and touched the hem of his garment, knowing if I just can touch Jesus someplace, I will be healed. She believed. Hallelujah. And he said to your daughter, verse 48, be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Hallelujah. So her faith made her well. You can receive anything from God, but you must come in faith. It's the currency of the kingdom. Just like we buy things with dollars. You want something in the kingdom of God, you have to come in faith. That's the way he designed it. <clears throat> That's why he says you can't please God without faith because his heart is to bless you, to bless you, but you have to come in faith. In the meantime, Jairus' daughter, who was 12, had died. They were on, he was, Jesus was on his way. Go down to verse 49. It says, While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, my daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered and said, do not be afraid, only believe and she shall be made well. It didn't matter. 
He wasn't phased by the fact that she was graveyard dead. When he came to the house, verse 51, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the mother of the girl, the parents of the girl. So there was a lot of unbelief there. When he said she was just asleep, they started ridiculing him, making fun of him. <laughs> None of that stuff phases him. So he, he put all of those people out and just took Peter, James, John, and the father and mother in with him. And I don't think the father and mother had much faith because the daughter was dead. I mean, they were probably hoping he could do something, but believing that he would raise her from the dead, I seriously doubt it, but I don't know. So, verse 54. But he put them all outside and took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. See, they, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Something like that happens nowadays. You guys want to get on TV and tell everybody about, look what God did through me. Jesus never did that. He always wanted to put things down. This is just normal everyday life for the Christian. It shouldn't be something that needs to be exploited on the front page. It's just everyday life if you're walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So he said to Jairus, um, only believe and she will be made well. So he said, little girl arise and she rose, told him to give her something to eat. So he put most of the unbelief out. And I think he took Peter, James, and John in there to maybe make up for the lack of faith that the parents might have had. This is just all my perception of stuff. Um, thinking things through. But um, verse 52. Uh, no, further down. 55, then the spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So all of this was happening because Jesus was walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, ministering out of his, um, ministering out of his, the overflow that he had with the time with the Father. Spent lots of time in prayer with him. So when he got out and about, he really didn't do much praying. Well, he prayed sometimes. He prayed for, uh, you know, over the blessing over the bread when he fed the 5,000, these kinds of things. But a lot of times he would just speak to the infirmity or speak a word, proclaim something, and it would happen. <clears throat> So now we're down to Luke 9. <clears throat> Just let me read the first few verses here. And he called the 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority 
over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. It's everyday life. He sent them to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. It's just part of everyday life for a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. It's not something just for the elite, some guy on TV. It's for every Christian. This is available to all of us. So in closing, you know, he's sending out the 12 now. He says, the training is done with. Um, now you guys got to go to work. Go do it as I did. Hallelujah. So he said at the very beginning that evangelism is a direct assault on the kingdom of darkness. And that's why if you're going out to evangelize, you need to do lots of praying. Lots of praying. Because you're going to run into resistance. And the enemy will do all kinds of things. I can't tell you how many things happened this week to distract me from this message. As he didn't want it shared. So we said that evangelism is a direct assault on the kingdom of darkness. So pray, 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 pray. And I suggest that you practice your gift in your home groups, as I said earlier, because it's a big advantage in evangelism. Jesus had one word of knowledge in a two-day revival. And we only heaven will tell us how many people were saved because of one word of knowledge. So one gift in operation sparked that revival. We found out that we have to be presence, present in unbelievers' life at least a little bit. We have to have some interaction with them if we're going to get them saved. Relationship evangelism is the best kind as far as I'm concerned. Billy Graham once said if he had it to do all over, that's what he would do. He would have done evangelism by relationship. <clears throat> His discipleship method, remember all this started with bold, persistent prayer, time with the Father, an all-nighter. That's how it began. So his discipleship method was this. Jesus used every situation to teach by example, to teach by parables, to teach by uh, verbal life lessons, like the Beatitudes. And he demonstrated his love, compassion, power and authority in his ministry. And I want to close with this statement. And we all know that dominion over darkness has been given to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. But, there's always a but. But we can only expect to see spiritual breakthrough to the degree we receive and apply that authority, prayer, and preaching, teaching, and personal ministry as Jesus did. How do we do that? By walking in the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does not make mistakes. He's the third person of the Trinity. He does not make mistakes. Ever. Amen. I'm going to ask Dan and the worship team to come. And if you're 
here today and you um, would like to walk in more of the power of the Holy Spirit, you would like to um, enhance your relationship with the Father, um, I'm just going to ask you to come and stand around the altar. And we could do this just out there, but there's something about coming forward that tells the Lord that you're serious about this. I'm just going to take a step of faith and go forward. And I'm just going to want to have a prayer with you for that. Um, so if that's you and you're able to and you want to come, come and I'll have a prayer with you. I'm just going to pray that our prayer life would be enhanced, um, um, that our relationship with the Father would, be, would grow, that we can um, walk more closely with him through the Spirit of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> so just agree with me in prayer. Father, I just thank you for these people standing here. By them coming forward, Lord, they're taking a step of faith. And they're saying, God, we want more of you and less of us in our life. We want a more intimate relationship with you, Holy Father. We want to be able to uh, walk with you and talk with you like Jesus did. We want to know what you want, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. Because you do not make mistakes. We kind of blunder through life without you. So we're asking you, Lord, to put a desire in our heart for more of an intimate relationship with you. To um, refire us, as it were, in the name of Jesus, to refire us, Lord God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might know you in a deeper way, that we might walk with you in a closer way, that we might be your light, Lord, that we might use our gifts out and about to uh, save the lost, to heal the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set the captive free, Lord God. Give us a bold heart to do these things as we continue to press in to you for more of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You can be seated, and let's worship the God, which is the source of everything, our compassion, our power, <clears throat> His grace supplies everything for us. <clears throat>